this is going to be a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is not about, oh, April was a great month. This is a 18 to 24 month to 36 month crisis. And you have to sustain through the crisis. So wait for data. You know, I don't think there's any particular benefit to sprinting super hard on the back of growth versus a very, quite a measured cautious approach for making sure your signals are correct. Welcome to Secret Leaders episode on funding during the pandemic. And if you, like me, have been caught out raising money for your startup in a fairly complicated time, then this is the episode for you. Now, for this episode, we decided to specifically reach out to our listeners and see what kinds of questions you wanted answered. So I reached out on Twitter and got a bunch of brilliant questions that can help guide our conversation to make it as helpful to you as possible. Now, on the show today, we have Fred Destan, who's going to do his best to answer as many of these as possible. Now, Fred is the founder of Stride VC, a £100 million seed stage fund focused operating in London and Paris which he started with Harry Stebbings that you might know from the 20 Minute VC podcast. Now, prior to Stride, Fred was a general partner at Axel and accomplice, formerly known as Atlas Ventures. And of 17 investments he led, 10 have exited and four are active value drivers, including five companies in excess of $1 billion in value, which include Zoopla, Deliveroo and PillPack. His portfolio has a total enterprise value of more than $10 billion, and he generated in excess of $700 million in exit value to investors. Long story short, Fred, though quite controversial at times in what he says, is informed, good at taking the right bets, and doesn't waste time with niceties, which means he's able to give us a direct and honest account of where the funding environment is at today. So Fred, firstly, welcome to the show. And if we can kick off with your current position as an investor, what your thoughts are on the startup environment over the last couple of years and high level to the next couple of years. Over to you, Fred. Hey, Dan, it's a, it's a pleasure to join. Um, so you asked me quite an open question about where we stand. Um, I think that regardless of the crisis, it's uh, probably very important not to lose the fact that we are in a accelerated overall transition towards technology, enabling absolutely every segment of every industry. So we, um, I would say at a high level in the startup land, are very fortunate to live in these unique times where every process, every industry, every type of product is being impacted by tech at an accelerated pace. And in fact, I would even say like tech startups don't even look like tech startups anymore. They're just companies that are built on tech. And what I mean by that is we've sort of, with the startup model, we kind of perfected a sort of small scale organism that's highly adaptable and that's really thrives on chaos and that thrives on constant change and in fact enables it, but also lives it. And so quite a unique uh, way of building companies that uh, I think serves us, served us well in the last few years, but actually puts us in pretty good stead to make it through this crisis, even though it's going to be hard for everybody. So if you're, if you're then delving into funding environment, well, where do I start? Um, I think people lack imagination to a certain extent in assessing how tough this is going to be, unfortunately. And I, I say this with a, a bit of joy in my voice because what else are you going to do? But the, the reality is, you know, demand crisis, supply crisis, liquidity issues, uh, you know, GDP forecasts to drop by 15% this year in the UK. None of us, nobody, unless you were born in, you know, 1923, none of us have lived through that. And whether uh, it looks like 29 or whether it looks like wartime, I don't think we've seen shocks of such magnitude. Now, that's not to be overly negative because this is not the 1920s. And we do have, for example, tech and the inventivity of people and, the, for example, the speed at which biotech is moving and home testing and you know, a bunch of solutions that are being developed and deployed at scale uh, very, very quickly that I think gives us hope that we might kind of snap out of this very quickly. But if you look at the data today, it's pretty scary. It is pretty scary. I mean, I saw one uh, one estimate that they're expecting uh, up to 30 percent of GDP being lost by you know by September. That's a staggering number. I mean, the the government 
prediction that just came out yesterday said about 15% down for this year. So what you have to watch is the quarter on quarter drops so they can look more dramatic. Uh, and then they're hoping for some kind of normalization towards the back end of the year. So you could have, you basically have a write-off in the next three months, right? The economy could fall 30%. Yep. And then hopefully you get a restart of economic activity and the overall picture might be down 15. But that's assuming, by the way, the government is assuming a three-month lockdown and then a three-month release on the restrictions over time, which we don't know what that means. And so what I, what I really took away from that is like the race is on to be able to reopen uh, portions of the economy, you know, and it's it's absolutely critical that we win that race because otherwise the damage to the fabric of the economy gets gets worse with every month that passes. Yeah, that's right. And I guess a lot of people right now, are, you know, especially on places like Twitter, where I know we both spend some time, you know, really asking the government to come forward with uh, what the exit strategy is from this as well, right? How quickly can we get the economy moving again, and what that actually looks like? So some kind of credible plan about that just to give some confidence there. Yeah, and the problem is we don't know. Um, and the reality is nobody knows, you know, the amount of new data we're processing every week is staggering. Uh, we're still learning about the virus itself, it's, et cetera, et cetera. So nobody's really able to predict that. So the government will produce numbers because they're being asked to produce numbers. But I mean, they're, um, they're only as good as the models and the models today are all broken. Yeah, it's interesting. It almost feels like, uh, you know, the British people are the VC and uh, the government are the startup, you know, constantly being asked to produce numbers, even if you don't know them. Uh, right. On that joke, <laughs> or reality, sorry, if you're on your side of the table, as you know, I was particularly keen to get you on the show because of, you know, there was this Google sheet that was going around of venture capital funds saying that they're open for business and, uh, and actively investing, which pretty much every VC, it seems in Europe, uh, took uh, great lengths to go on and quickly fill in their name and say that they were. And, you know, this is despite the fact that the founder community is pretty tight knit and uh, we all speak and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. And then out of nowhere, there's this one bold VC who's honest enough to just uh, write one lonely no, we are not in a sea of yes, of course we are. And surprisingly, even though it was quite a negative response, it actually got a pretty positive one from within the startup world because someone had just come out and been honest. And as you know, that person is yourself. So my first question to you on this is, is everyone else full of shit? What do you think? No, I don't think people are full of shit. I think that, first of all, it depends where you are in the ecosystem. So if you're doing pre-seed investments, it's not that you don't care, but you know, if you're going to back a company at pre-seed, that's a low-burn company, and you can take your time and you don't care too much about commercialization, that's easier than if you're funding Series B companies that have... 100 employees that are reliant on growth, right? So I think very much people very often preach for their own chapel. Uh, the reality is very mixed depending on where you are. It's also dependent on, you know, how far ahead you are in your fund. You know, if you're very early and you're still relaxed about your cash or if you're towards the end of the fund and you're starting to think, oh, shit, I'm going to have to go back to market to raise the next one with the valuations way down on my companies. And suddenly you're like, man, you know, that's a much harder position to be in. So I think there's a continuum of positions. The reality is I expect deal volumes to be down. I'm going to throw a number out. 70% this quarter, some large number, right? Maybe it's going to be 50%, but I think a precipitous drop. And the reason why we said we're not investing is threefold. Number one, we have 11 companies in our portfolio, not all of which have been announced. If you want to help the founders, you're not going to help the founders by stepping off your Peloton bike and going to tell them to cut costs by 40%. You're going to help them by sitting down and going through their messaging, for example, and saying, hey, how do we adjust your messaging so that you have hard ROIs that you can sell into a tough market? Or you might say, why don't we review our pricing and contract structure such that we take away barriers to decision making? You know, you have to get into the arena and go with the founders and do some actual work so you understand what the hell they're doing and how it's impacting them and how they can react quickly. So that takes time. So point number one was, I'm all about focus. I'm like, I do not have time to process you know, 50, 20, 30, or even 10 incoming requests when I know that a bunch of my founders need sparring partners. 
you know, for founders, it's a very lonely moment because, you know, you have to be a ray of sunshine to the rest of your team. You can't be coming with your anxiety to the Zoom stand-up calls in the morning and people seeing that you're depressed. So it's very lonely. You need somebody who you can talk to about that stuff openly and then brainstorm. And some of the stuff you have to brainstorm might be, might be difficult. You know, I have to take 20% of my team out or I have to pivot uh, on my strategy. I mean, it's not like you can talk to everybody inside your company about that stuff. So that was number one. Number two, I'm just not smart enough to process the amount of information that we were getting. And it was coming so fast and so furious that I just thought, you know what? It would be foolish of me to assume that I'm able to process the amount of information that we're getting on a week-by-week basis and, and to draw hard conclusions from there. And, you know, I'm putting other people's money to work. You know, there might be pension funds, uh, there might be research institutes. And so I don't take that very lightly. And so for me to form a view of where this market was going, I think just was going to take me some time. And I, and I just didn't feel comfortable putting any money in the ground right now with that much uncertainty. And so I'd rather, for founders, you know, the number one commodity that's valuable right now is cash. The second most valuable is time. So <laughs> the last thing we wanted to do is to say, oh, sure, we'll keep looking at deal flow when the reality was we're not going to put a, a check to work in the coming, say, six, eight, ten weeks or whatever it is. And so I just came out saying, look, we're not investing right now. Now, it ended up being a lone voice in a sea of people that pretended, quote unquote, it was business as usual. And I'm convinced, and I know a number of people are writing term sheets, and they are doing remote investing, and they're doing all that stuff. So it is correct to say that the, some people are open for business. But if you're doing one-fifth of your deal volume, you know, I'd rather people come out and say, look, our appetite for risk is down, or our bar is much higher, or we move to earlier stage investment because we don't feel comfortable doing any form of scale stage investment right now, or whatever it is. But you know, just give a reasonable assessment of what you're trying to do to founders. And I think that the prevalent narrative of like, oh yeah, it's business as usual is the one that triggered me a little bit. And I was like, of course it's not business as usual. And it's not helpful for founders to hear that it's business as usual. Like everything just changed. And it's also a bit stupid because we don't believe it. As in we're, we're out there pitching for investment and being told on an individual basis, which we're then collating as a fairly active and talkative community that you know these people are actively saying that they're not, but then going on a spreadsheet saying they are. So that's not very helpful. We had one company fundraising and we had eight advanced conversations and they whittled down to three in the space of a week. Hmm. And the, the only thing in common was COVID not comfortable. So, so that, that was the reality I lived through. And so, you know, it kind of makes me laugh when people say business is unusual. It's clearly not the case. And as you say, founders are not stupid. It's also going to be a long crisis. And so uh, there's part of me that says, you know, what you need right now is staying power and consistency. Um, you know, we, we've, we closed on um, Collective Benefits, which is a company that provides benefits to gig economy workers. And, and, and it's my friend, Anthony Bielen. Exactly. So that was in February. We did another one in February. We've got one that's, you know, has gone through, is going through now, which we haven't announced yet. And so we also were quite active. And also we did two reinvestments inside our own companies. So we were quite active anyway. And so, you know, if you look at our own pace being pretty high and we wanted time to digest plus market uncertainty, I mean, it's just, it just kind of made sense for us. Um, and as we said, you know, I think signaling reality to founders is something I think the venture industry could just get better at. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. 
Just head to vanta.com slash secret leaders. That's V-A-N-T-A.com slash secret leaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So when do you think you're going to start investing again? You know, you said this is a long, a long change in circumstances. So um, I guess time for your predictions. So I read avidly and I read... Ray Dalio, and I listen to Howard Marks, and I'm trying to understand the systemic issues we're running into. So some of them are very abstract. Um, Is the dollar going to continue to be a reserve currency? Do we have a risk of return to inflation? So these don't immediately apply to what we do day to day, but they're interesting or important macro questions. And then some of them are very granular. So we have one enterprise software company in the messaging space, which we've not announced yet, and you know, half their pipelines accelerating and half their pipelines evaporating. And so part of what we're also trying to do is get as much information as we can about how are these markets being impacted. Some of our companies have accelerated through the crisis that I didn't expect to. Unibody, for example, sells to universities and you know, they have a digital meeting product or a digital fair product, and that's their their phone is flying off the hook. So that's a positive. At the same time, uh, and this company is doing really well right now, but at the same time, you know, universities themselves are likely to come under significant pressure. So you're trying to balance out macro impact on your buyer versus immediate need for your product. Yeah. I mean, these are, it's just hard to, hard to parse that information and to derive a very strong thesis. The other thing I would say is right now, I think, there's a bunch of obvious avenues to invest. Remote work, e-learning, e-sports, you know, you name it. And I don't think we're going to do something particularly exceptional ourselves if we suddenly jump on the bandwagon of remote work. What you should be doing is be KKR, who's putting $100 million to work into the leading remote work company globally, and maybe five or six of the growth funds kind of jump into that, and they can anoint the winner. Uh, but for us as a seed fund, you know, does it really make sense to jump on the obvious trends that are coming out of the crisis? I'd rather be a little bit more sophisticated about, let's find out how the world changes and what new opportunities emerge that may, there are probably things I haven't seen. You know, the most boring thing you can do in the world is ask a VC for what's hot because we all say the same shit, right? The people who know what's hot are the founders and entrepreneurs who develop unique insights and come after markets that you never thought about. And, you know, I guess my job is like to be mentally plastic so I can recognize that and don't, you know, I always say I posit my own ignorance. I do not know anything going to the meeting. And that kind of mindset helps you just be, you know, have a fresh mind. And so I really don't want to do trend in investing on what's obviously performing in the COVID crisis. I don't think that's how we're going to do special stuff. And, you know, to the point uh, you just said, you know, you've just mentioned uh, remote teams, productivity software, and, uh, you know, companies having to manage, you know, their own customer base. We had the co-founder of Slack, uh, Cal Henderson, talking about exactly this, that on one side, Slack has not really experienced growth like this before since obviously COVID started. But at the same time, a lot of the, you know, that's new companies signing on. But at the same time, the existing companies they had are obviously also dwindling in numbers because those companies are having to furlough so many of their own employees. And so they're seeing this really interesting, you know, zigzag of user growth, trying to understand how to, you know, how to manage that and how to predict it. And it's a super fascinating insight, I thought. It's spot on. 
Um, okay, so enough from me. I thought we've got some very, very wise people on Twitter asking much more exceptional questions. So I'm going to just go straight into them. And uh, I guess we'll call this section Ask Fred. So Evgeny Shadchnev of Makers wants to say, um, what do you think about revenue-based financing? Will many startups choose it over traditional equity-based financing? And do you think that's a threat for angels and seed funds like yourself? I'm delighted to see alternative forms of funding for startups. I am very ambiguous about the job of being a venture capitalist. In other words, on the one hand, I recognize the need that we feel when people seriously need working capital or seriously need to fund growth. On the other hand, DHH, um, I'm forgetting his name now, David from 37 yeah, Signal. Yeah, he's coming onto our podcast in a couple of weeks, exactly, from Basecamp. I, I love his view of the world, which is why the fuck would you raise VC money if you don't need to? And I kind of subscribe to that, you know, be the master of your own destiny. So I think that alternative forms of financing, such as revenue-based financing, are great. Uh, they offer alternatives that are potentially non-dilutive. And I think it's fantastic. So I view, like I said, I view startups as an organizational form that's incredibly hard to beat. That's very exciting to, to build. And, you know, uh, not all of it requires VC. And, you know, God bless if you don't need VC money, like don't take it, you know, unless, you, unless you're really looking for capital partners and inspiring partners and, you know, done well, it's actually quite good. Uh, when I did the pill pack uh, with TJ Parker and Elliot Cohen, you know, we built a fantastic relationship all through that journey. I can tell you they're friends, the initial board, which is David Frankel from Founder Collective and myself, and them felt like a team all the way through. And, you know, we had their back uh, through good news, through bad news. They were incredibly open and there was no, no defensiveness. And that was a great journey. Now, I have as many examples of absolute, I'm going to use a bad word, absolute dicks on boards who like to terrorize uh, founders, who like to exercise power over them, or who just don't understand enough about what the company does, which is also super dangerous because they're not deep enough into the business. And so they're poor advisors, but they're advisors who hold you know, a board position, investor consents, uh, and potentially the keys to your next financing round. So I have an equal number of stories that are great and that are awful. And if there's non-VC-backed avenues, great. I love it. Is it going to kill the VC market? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I don't need to fund 500 companies for my for my fund to work, we, we fund 20 to 25 per fund cycle. So we are artisans. And I think if you're a craftsperson, you know, you kind of always have a job because you know your craft and that's what you do, right? So Bethany Kobe of Tech Will Save Us says, uh, what do you think the role of VCs and venture capital is during a global crisis where economic certainty is fragile? So what do you think the VC community should be doing to ensure innovation, founders and good businesses survive through the situation? And do you have any good examples of that? Hi, Bethany. It's a great question. So I, I personally have the following view. I think that we can get very excited about the macro, but that our sphere of influence tends to be quite limited. And so the first thing I would say as a VC that I try and do is to be a steady influence. If you're faced with an extremely tough crisis and you don't know how long it's gonna last, job number one is to help people assess themselves, their own fears, the hardships that are ahead in a way where you try and take the passion out of it so they're able to think again. Because there's nothing worse than fear. And fear as a founder might be in your gut, then it moves to your chest because you're afraid you're gonna have to tell people that you have to let them go or your company's gonna fail or whatever it may be. And so step one is like, at a human level, I guess, you know, allow people to name and manage their fears. And then number two, allow them to assess, so basically deconstruct the situation so they can assess what the possible paths are. Because actually in a crisis, usually the, the decisions are quite simple in a way. You know, it's like you restrict your scope, you, you cut your expenses, you, you need to make decisions of focus. It's just really helping people think through what the variables are, and then be a calming influence. And one of the things also is relieving the pressure. So you were, you were joking about uh, forecasts before in an unforecastable world. So what we told all our management teams like day two was like, we don't care if you hit any form of numbers. 
we know you're going to do your best. We know you're thinking about the growth of your company a hundred times more than we are. So we, do, we, first of all, we don't care about forecasts. The forecasts are, have just all gone to the bin. What we do care about is some form of planning framework to just help us think through it. But don't worry if you don't hit the numbers. These are special times. Just take the right decisions and work through this as best as you can. So I would say my first point of influence is to try and be, for people close to me, you know, to be some form of positive or calming influence. Then there is, what's the role of VC at large? I don't know. I'm not going to say I don't care, but to a certain extent, I don't care. I think there's a lot of virtue signaling. I think that the people who, for example, give money away are not the people to talk about it. And it is an area which I found incredibly fraught and, and where it's easy to lose a lot of energy. So, for example, what should the UK government do to support the startup ecosystem? There is no doubt that innovation is a strategic asset to any country. Right? We know the future, and especially coming out of the crisis, relies on innovation to a large extent. And we've been especially brilliant as a country um, over the last decade. Right. So you have an incredible asset that holds the, key, the keys to a lot of the future here. So it may warrant, at a systemic level, to look at it slightly differently than you know, some legacy industries are just going to die here. And you know, this is the, the new world order that's being written by, by COVID, and there's not much you can do about it. Now, but then you go one level down. So I think government should do match funding uh, in a very broad and systemic way with angels, funds, crowdfunding platforms, etc., and try and do something that is formulaic, automatic, and that basically allows funding to flow, matching to private funds. You start talking about that, which you know, to me kind of makes, makes sense, and then you immediately get into, well, uh, that's uh, in favor of the VCs and blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, within five minutes, I'm like, I, I just, I don't have the, the patience. And I think I, I'd much rather go fund another two or three companies or help my companies make the right decisions and to get involved into what the British Business Bank should do, et cetera. And thankfully, there are other people carrying that torch. I would say personally, not something I'm interested in. And I, you know, I vote as a citizen. I'm in favor of universal basic income in situations like these. And I think we should follow for as long as we need and all that stuff. But I mean, these are private views. If I express them on Twitter, am I going to change anybody's opinion? I don't think so. I think that's very fair. Jack Rogers of Picnic says, if you were a consumer social app, which you're not, but if you're a consumer social app based in London raising your seed, where would you focus your energy in terms of fundraising? So your options are A, Europe, little appetite for social, more appetite for European startups, or B, the US, loads of appetite for social, but less appetite for European startups. My first answer to that is you probably need to talk to four times more people than you did before. And I'm sorry if that sucks, but that's the reality. Uh, it's okay, they're a social app. They should love talking to people. <laughs> that's, that's a fair point. Well, I'm not sure if they love talking to investors. <laughs> but you know, by the way, when we raised uh, Stride One, we talked to 420 investors and we had a thousand meetings. So I know fundraising for startups is painful, but I mean, I honestly have pitched the same story probably 800 times over. The reason why I'm saying that is we don't know right now is investing. There's not a lot of transparency and money could come from anywhere. In general, at Seed, solace lies close to home. So your most likely sources of financing, especially in a crisis, are friends and family, people who know you, people who have close-knit social circles around you. If you go to the US right now, there are 1,100 Seed stage funds that have been raised over the last 10 years. And most of them have portfolios that have sub six months of life, six to 12 months, whatever the number is. And all these portfolios are looking to fundraise. So you have to realize that you're going to go into a crunch with an insanely noisy environment with a lot of people needing money and that you need very, very good reasons to exist and to make it onto the radar of remote investors. Now, having said that, if you're a social consumer media, I would definitely attack the US. I would use AngelList aggressively, uh, et cetera. I just think you need to widen your funnel and talk to 4x more people than you think. 
Very fair. Okay, so Fred, Oleg at Sweatcoin wants to know, in 2000 and 2008, we also had investment freezes. So how is now different and why? And two, what data, smoke signal or hunch would you know, bring you back into investing and why? So 2000 is actually a crisis that started on paper in April 2000. That was basically people underestimated how long it would take for consumer behavior to change. And also the technology wasn't ready. In other words, we had massive usability problems. So people make, made assumptions which turned out to be correct 20 years later, thinking they would, they would arrive in 12 months. The real crisis started when, uh, because of the impact on telco, because basically the telecoms overinvested like crazy to, f to create the backbone of the internet and then all went bust one after the other. So WorldCom, uh, you know, all the CLACs, et cetera. So you, and then, you know, September 11th and a, and a bit of economic downturn. So that was tough, but it was sort of sectorially economically driven. 2008 is a over-leveraged crisis. You know, banks were leveraged 32x their balance sheet uh, with a particularly rotten asset class at its core because of the Fed's permissive policies on home ownership for the previous 10 years. And so you had basically the biggest consumer segment in the US, which is real estate, taking a dive and a major liquidity crisis combined with the explosion of derivatives. So all the banks were linked and nobody knew where the risk lie anymore. And so you had systemic risk on the banking system. That was bad, but this is worse. This is demand supply being hit at the same time. Effectively, the world runs on global trade and you just shut down travel, spending, all at the same time. So the heart of global trade just got put in the freezer and then you're looking for second order effects. So your average small business in the US has 27 days of working capital, which we're hitting right about now. So you're gonna to start to see the fabric of the economy being damaged. And, and then liquidity is the next issue because we've lived in a world of private equity, leverage backed, you know, asset buying, and, and the world is over levered. So what's happening here is a just much broader reaching than anything we've seen before. I'm not looking for smoke signals, actually. I'm a believer that startups will thrive through this because it's a microeconomic problem for us. So I think that the question is really about picking, I need to pick another 10 companies in the next two years. And it's about picking 10 companies that will, uh, either they're building the future and we give them enough time to do that, or they're, um, or you know, they're accelerating the transition that's happening at a societal level. You know, that's all very self-centered. I think people have to remember also, especially the fucking tech Twitter that's complaining about the crisis all the time. Like this is a large-scale humanitarian crisis followed by a large-scale unemployment crisis on the back of us weakening our social fabric for a long, long time, right? And I think that whatever we do day to day, I think let's please keep perspective and i think the tech world in a way like lacks perspective and i know you know look some founders are gonna have to feed their families and run out of money and it's it's as hard as for anyone else and there's no unemployment for them at the end of the road necessarily so i'm not trying to minimize that but i think the tech sector actually is a quite a unique position to to do okay even though it's going to be tough and then thrive Okay, so moving away from the tech sector, so for so JP of all plants asks, so for ventures in verticals like food delivery or remote learning that are experiencing short-term rocketing of demand, how do you focus on capitalizing on opportunity versus drastically resizing to lengthen runway slash create buffers? That's a complicated question. What your founder is asking is, do I need to extend my runway no matter what if I see that my market's accelerating? My bias would be things will get worse before they get better. Now, it is very difficult to not seize opportunities when they're there. So I, I, you know, this is a very finely balanced discussion. However, my bias would be things will get worse before they get better. It is usually better to take hard action early and remember that uh, you will be able to build through this crisis, especially when it comes to talent. So I think you kind of have to default back to your fundamentals and assess extremely, extremely hard all aspects that are going to touch you here. So what's my likelihood of getting refinanced by when? What can I show when that happens? Fundamentally, in my team, do I have any B players that should go anyway? But in general, my bias would be, can I reduce the focus of what I do? So please don't grow, even if you're seeing growth in revenue, 
don't grow like it's 99, widening your product scope, et cetera. Keep your product really tight. If it's selling, it's selling, that's great. Maybe perfect your value proposition so that customers really can't live without what you have to offer and be extremely cautious. I, I, I err on the side of caution. If you see that the growth is sustained, you can lean into it. This is going to be a marathon. This is not a sprint. This is not about, oh, April was a great month. This is a 18 to 24 month to 36 month crisis. And you have to sustain through the crisis. So wait for data. You know, I don't think there's any, um, there's any particular benefit to sprinting super hard on the back of growth versus a very, quite a measured cautious approach of making sure your signals are correct. Uh, if you hire another six people and then you suddenly realize your market's falling off a cliff and it takes you three months to take your burn back down and then you've brought in your out of cash date by three months, I mean, you just made your life like way, way fucking harder instead of just delaying your decision to grow. Okay, so Gabby Kahane of Multiple says, where in the business do you think founders should be conserving or spending their capital right now? Ah, good old Gabby, close friend of mine. He has much better hair and tattoos, though. I would say that um, I described something called the startup death spiral, and a lot of people tell me, told me that was totally trite advice. Uh, the startup death spiral could be described as the following. Your VC is on the board and is super anxious and your prospects aren't looking great. Uh, you hence decide to cut your burn indiscriminately or cutting too hard. And you get into a vicious spiral where you can't really sell anything or actually just deliver your product. And you end up shrinking uh, with the, you start to lose some customers and have some churn and, and you, you end up in a position where you can't really do anything and you exhaust yourself trying to do it. So I would say that the first thing to say is like you have to kind of play to win still a little bit. So what, what I typically would like recommend would be to reduce the product scope dramatically. If you can sell what you have in the box today, make it better, you know, reduce your roadmap in width. You know, your product may not be perfect. Maybe some customers are waiting for features, but if you can sell what you have in the box, you know, make your engineering, your on, make your onboarding perfect, make your customer support tech enabled. You know, just think about making this thing absolutely pure and then maybe delay your product expansion. And then the other thing, especially in SaaS companies, is very often quite a bit of the marketing spend is actually discretionary and it could be a fair amount of your monthly burn. So I'm like, hey, Write your own fucking blog post. Stop using a PR agency. Don't sponsor any, you know, any webinars. Yeah, I thought you were going to say podcast. Careful. But sometimes there's a surprising amount of discretionary spend lying around that you're like, well, but otherwise I won't get as many leads. I'm like, well, maybe the founders go back to selling. Maybe you redeploy some of your customer service people into sales support and you're just like sell and protect the product and then cut everything else out. Now, of course, if you're a low ticket value SaaS company, then your marketing is yourself. So this is not generic advice, but, but I think, you know, keep selling. If you don't have momentum in your business, you will die. So you got to find a way to keep generating good news because there's nothing worse than that. And so whatever you need to hack your way to generating some form of progress, please try and do that. I know, I know it's easier said than done, but, you know, I would cut, I'd cut everything else out before I cut that. And now it's time for some good news here on Secret Leaders. Every week, we're giving you the opportunity to share your company's good news and feature here in the UK's number one business podcast to help spread some much needed positivity and joy. And besides, if you've got a platform like we do, it's nice to use it to give others some space to thrive in these times. Now, all you've got to do is follow me at Dan Murray Serta on Twitter. And each week I reach out asking you to respond to the thread for good news. And we do our best to feature as much as we can whilst keeping you, our listeners, as attention. So without further ado, big congratulations to Cesar Torres of DevonGarden.com, who fought a fierce competition to win a place on ProVeg's International Business Incubator, which is going to help them scale up their research and development on proteins production and secure investment to bring their delicious, healthy and sustainable animal-free alternative products to market for consumers to enjoy. Well done, Caesar, and your lovely mission. 
Next up, the rather smart Lex Stanley, who's the founder of On I Go, who've created a free virtual escape game to help friends and families connect through a fun shared experience. The game, which can be played as a household or remotely via video call, challenges players to solve a series of cryptic puzzles using items from around the house in order to unlock an ancient treasure chest in the quickest time possible. You can find them at onigoescapes.com. Rather intelligently, Adash Raj has built SocialQ, a mobile app useful to small and large businesses alike, offering a smart virtual queue that is quick to set up and easy to use. It's free to download and use for small businesses. SocialQ lets customers browse nearby stores, view real-time wait, and join a virtual queue to get notified when it's their turn. Brilliant for social distancing. Leander Woodbridge of Popcoms based in Bristol have created interactive touchscreen communications for events, exhibitions and meetings. Because they've all been cancelled or postponed, they flipped their entire business offering in two weeks to create virtual digital exhibitions. The website is www.popcoms.com and big congrats for you, Leander. Now finally, making sure the islands in the British Isles are getting supplies, we're shouting out Consortique founder Paul Rigby, who says the UK Department for Transport have just announced at Downing Street that they are accelerating our future transport zone drone project to deliver critical medical supplies to the Isle of Wight to ensure island communities have robust and expedient logistic links too. Now that's all for this week's good news. As I said, you can follow me at Dan Murray Searcher on Twitter. I'll respond to the thread and we'll try to get you featured next week. So I've got a, te- a couple of technical questions that um, I think you might enjoy. Uh, certainly in your position, you're, you're able to answer. So one is from Peter Nixie of Barn Dance, who says, given that most VC cash is already committed by LPs, when will the LPs pull back actually uh, emerge downstream? So given that VCs still have to deploy their current funds, does this mean that there'll be heavier deployments later? Or do you anticipate LPs missing their capital calls, um, just in case if you could give a quick description of what an LP is and what that even means. So funds um, are raised with a typically 10-year life and the limited partners, so a partnership has a general partner who runs the partnership, which is a VC firm, and limited partners, they're so-called limited partners because their liability is limited, unlike the general partner, are basically investors. So LPs is VC speak for investors. So our investors come in, they commit for 10 years, and potentially these funds get extended to 12 or 14. So they're very long, illiquid periods. And then within those 10 years, you have an investment period, which legally normally is four or five years, and most funds end up deploying in like three. So what you do is you issue capital calls as you need them, and capital calls are basically us, the VC, saying to our investors, hey, we need 4 million quid. Can you please wire it within the next two or three weeks? And why is because our investors don't want that liquidity sitting in a bank account doing nothing. And we don't want to degrade our returns with, you know, money not yielding anything because in theory, we're supposed to produce 25% returns. So at the extreme, people do a capital call a month, which tends to piss the investors off. But typically, people do four per annum, roughly, right? So if somebody says, I got a 300 million fund, what they really mean is I've invested 20 or 30, I've got two in the bank, and based on my next two or three deals, I will call more capital so that I'm able to fund them. So the problem that you've seen in prior crises is some LPs, some investors basically run out of cash. Uh, Family offices or whatever it may be, sometimes corporates, come under cash pressure, uh, or they decide you're expendable, so they could lose confidence in you and you know stop wiring the money. Now, there's some compensation mechanisms whereby other investors might take the slack, but you know if this happens systemically, it can be a serious issue, and it's happened in previous crises. The other problem is you don't have a lot of legal recourse because I'm not going to go sue one of my investors if they don't wire the money in reality. Um, so the only recourse course you have is you can take the commitment they've already made so they've invested three million out of ten in my fund you can take that three million and say you're losing that interest so you have to write it off and i'll go sell that interest to someone else so there is some economic punishment in there but you know if people are under duress they won't pay so that could happen tomorrow i think if you're index ventures 
nobody will fuck with index, right? They're probably 10 times oversubscribed. If anybody even is a day late on a capital call, I suspect they, they'll come under fire. Uh, if your stride.vc was a first-time fund, you know, it is possible that some of our LP base at some point might say, yeah, we're in trouble. We have a very nice LP base, so they'd probably tell us in advance and say, hey, could you find somebody else to pick up our LP interest? And in our case, actually, we should a capital call very early in the crisis. By the way, I did it because we needed the money, but also I did it early because I wanted to shake the trees out and find out like if we're, we are going to have any form of refusal to wire money, I want to know quickly. But actually, all the money came in. So, And I think we do have a, a sound capital base, but it, it can have an impact for sure. Now, what's more important is what happens next. So the big institutionals always have a flight to quality behavior in crisis. So they will give money to Sequoia or Index, but anybody who's a marginal name, they won't. Anybody who's a new name, they might not. So it makes life way, way, way harder for new managers coming online because suddenly what was the discretionary sort of risk-taking budget has disappeared. And so I think for second-time funds or first-time managers, it can be insanely tough and in fact i think people are starting to raise money right now unless they have highly differentiated strategies and something that's really compelling uh i think might be might be difficult which by the way is kind of absurd because you know you're going to make money in this crisis by investing in venture capital especially early because it's actually a great place to park your cash but that's forgetting that most of these large investors get destroyed on their public portfolio and maybe their private equity portfolios exploding and you know the the ceiling just came down and they're just looking to save like for places where <laughs> where they can save some liquidity so the premium to liquidity has gone up even though rationally it might be a good place to invest so as a as an early stage investor so Ed Stevens of Angel Investment Network says you know where do you think the value is to be had at the moment is it in companies with grit and solid economics or ones that can show explosive growth owing to the challenges faced by corona the answer has always been all of the above and the oldest debate in this sector is oh yeah, we're a real business because we're real unit economics and people saying that's the only kind of business you should fund and people saying, why would anybody give a dollar? I remember an, a period where people said, why on earth did anybody fund Facebook? You know, it's absurd. It's an advertising based model or YouTube. You know, people were making fun of YouTube when Google bought it. You know, people were saying they were nuts to buy it for $1.9 billion, which is probably the, the best acquisition in the world of tech. So the answer is, if you're able to paint a picture for the capital markets that looks exciting through and beyond the crisis and get people to take that leap of faith, you will be funded in some cases with no revenue where you're building the basis for tomorrow. And you wouldn't be uh, funded in another case because you have rock solid unit economics. All of the above apply. I've always refused to get into that game of, of rules. I think that you do you. You know, you're a founder, you do what's right by your business. Some businesses delay monetization. Some businesses build assets for the future that monetize way late into their life or require scale to monetize well. And some businesses have early, great unit economics. Okay, so I'm going um, to end with a question written by myself. Um, because, you know, I've got to, I, I might as well top and tail this one. Um, so my question for you, Fred, is what's your takeaway for founders trying to survive this period? And how are you as an influential VC with money to spend thinking about how you can be helpful to them? So I think our first, I, 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 per usual, I'm going to be very honest. I think my first obligation or my first port of call was our own portfolio. And I think that we have spent an inordinate amount of time trying to go, like I said, beyond the financials and just sitting down and just helping people think through products, et cetera, et cetera. I think beyond that, we invest very slowly. We don't do that many deals. So we're not going to solve that by suddenly writing checks like crazy. I think where you can be helpful, I've done this in the past and I, you know, it's, it's part of the program going forward, but let's see if I do it, right? Because I can say whatever I want to sound good. But I used to do mentoring and I would make people pay for the mentoring actually, but then donate to charity. And the idea was come and spend an hour on Zoom or whatever. Actually, I used to do this in person at my house and it's gonna ask me anything and you try and make it as open as possible. So I'm. this is just my personal style. I like actions that are, close to me that I can measure 
and I'm not much, I've never been much for systemic action or branded action. So it's really, I, I don't know. It, it's, it, I always try and act to, for well for people around me. And so I don't really give a shit about legacy, by the way. I just, I know not everybody's going to like me because I'm outspoken and all that stuff, but I, I try and do right by those that are close to me. But anyway, you know, one thing to mention on this investor behavior. So I think we have to, we have to just not be, be cognizant of, of what's going on here. So some people have taken advantage of the crisis, licking their chops to drop ugly terms, warrants, and all sorts of stuff because they could. Other funds have stuck true to even highly priced rounds. It's typically, again, it's easier if you're a large fund with an incredible legacy where it's like a drop in the bucket. I think that when you, when you come into a crisis like this and you have to renegotiate stuff, the question is how you do it. Because if you sit down and you say, look, the, the world is collapsing around us, maybe the target market you're going after is collapsing, we need to sit down and rethink what this investment might look like. I don't have a moral problem with that. I think the question is whether it's done with you know, a certain level of empathy and whether each party takes some of the pain. So I might invest at a level that I'm not comfortable with. The founder might take a haircut on the deal that he agreed previously. But, you know, it's sort of a respectful resetting of what the deal should look like. So I think it's important for people not to, you know, the most vocal will say, oh, there's evil behavior. And then all the other people don't say anything because they don't want to get their heads chopped off, even though they're thinking, you know, that's bullshit. I think the reality is always somewhere in the middle. You could remove yourself from an investment because you know the internals are there to fund it and you know the company's prospects got significantly impacted. And you know what? It's the job of the existing investors to carry that company through. You know, it's it, what I mean by that is it's not always black and white, right? Like the reality is gray. And I think it's more a matter of how people act. Like in everything, you know, when things get tough. It's how you act. And sometimes hard decisions have to be made. You know, your employees are not going to think you're an asshole because you have to let them go because you ran out of money. And I think that's true in every walk of life. So I don't think we should be naive. I think we have to just try and align ourselves. You create alignment. Don't forget empathy or respect. And if you're going to have to make hard decisions, make them in a way that's uh, cognizant of what the other person is going through. Thank you so much, Fred, for your time. Pleasure. It was really nice to be talking to you, to you all and uh, good luck with the next, uh, the next year or so. Thank you, mate. All right. Take care. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. Pre-COVID, the total grocery online penetration, including all of the major players, Ocado, Tesco and everyone who delivers, only accounts for 7%. It's just extraordinary when, you know, we go to do talks now at our old school and you see these 18-year-old kids at sixth form just glued to their phones. And these kids, have they've grown up with smartphones, whereas we didn't. Do we really think that 93% of them will be doing their grocery shopping offline? It's just never going to happen. We hope you enjoyed this episode. It was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta, producer Rich Martell, editor Harry Morton of Lower Street Media, and marketing by Hannah Russell of Mags Creative, and stunning visual design by our talented designer, Christina Naru of smartupvisuals.com. You can check out show notes, transcripts, and our upcoming live events on our website, secretleaders.com. If you've not yet, please hit subscribe, leave us a review, tell a friend, take a screenshot of this episode and add it to an Insta story. I mean, you know what to do. And tag us at Secret Leaders or at Dan Murray Serta, and we'll add you to our story in appreciation back. Rich and I put together Secret Leaders for free because we love our day jobs as entrepreneurs, but every time someone takes the time to share it, it means a lot to us. So don't forget, it's the little things like that that keep us coming back every week and every year into the studio. See you next week.